Coral Kelp and Community, Episode 9, The Natural Disaster with Jillian Guernsey. This is our first deep dive episode, and it seemed good timing as the holidays are approaching and everyone is running into the kitchen trying to make the best decisions for their family and for the planet. What we eat is a very personal choice, but are food labels helping us or hindering us? And do they actually tell us anything about farm runoff that impacts the ocean or any other environmental concerns? Okay, so <laughs> so let's talk about your paper. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I really enjoyed reading your paper. The thank first you. thing I'm going to do is compliment your writing style. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> it, was, it was really easy to read. Uh, you know, for almost 30 pages, it, I felt like it was a page turner. It just flew by. <laughs> well, good. Thank you. I'm um, glad. Yeah, which, you know, usually you would think a law review article would not be a page turner um but it was it was great it was fascinating and um some of the things you wrote blew my mind what was the Um, most shocking to you the most shocking to me was the information about vanilla Mm -hmm. uh which we'll we'll get to that's that's one of the examples from your paper a little tease little tease for you yeah (laughs) coming up vanilla um but so okay so this paper very broadly discusses um the effect of food labeling and organic labeling um -hmm. what what these terms mean if they're actually useful anymore um and yes listeners i will tie this into the ocean (laughs) but let's just just to orient orientate everybody um let's start out with uh you discussed a thing called the natural fallacy naturalistic fallacy the naturalistic thing yes um so the naturalistic yes so and our intuition about food yes um so the so yes the naturalistic fallacy is a is a phenomenon that exists in areas other than food. It exists just across the board. Um, it's a psychological sort of thing with humans is we, we assign a higher moral value or ethical value or, or worth to things that are quote natural versus things that are unnatural. Um, so in our minds, in our sort of collective consciousness, natural things are better than things that are not natural. I mean, think about even, you know, you you die of natural causes. That means you live to your 90 and you die in your sleep. Whereas if you die in, <laughs> if you die an unnatural death, that means you were poisoned or shot or something terrible. So again, it's it's a very, it, it, I mean, I hate to use this word. I, every time this word comes up just in conversation now, I always hate it, but it's a very natural phenomenon. <laughs> it, is, it is something that's very deeply ingrained in, in the human psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that I think in it, it exists in, in terms of food specifically, you see it all over. You get a package of chips and it says, oh, all natural flavors are made with natural flavors or what have you. And, and people flock to those kinds of foods because, oh, it's all natural. That must mean it's healthy. 
when in reality, what's because of the complexities of the current food market, that term has become more of a marketing term than anything else. It's not, it doesn't, it's not very meaningful in, in today's current food market. Yeah. Um, it was funny immediately after I read your paper, uh, I had to go to the grocery store. You, know, <laughs> you don't. You look at you look at food labels differently after. You. And, well, I I actually I took a picture of this and I have to send it to you. But okay. um, there was this cheese spread in a tube, mm. labeled all natural, <laughs> and it it just it looked it had this little cartoon chef on it, and it looked like the most unnatural. <laughs> form of cheese <laughs> and I was yeah. like really yeah it's yeah. it's in a tube guys yeah <laughs> no I know <laughs> you you squeeze it out of a tube like it's it's almost like it reminded me of cheese whiz in mm. a way you know and I'm yeah. you know put put a natural label on cheese whiz and I'm like mm. yeah I, I mean it, yeah I even I think I even mentioned this in the paper the fact that we there is such a thing as all natural Cheetos. Yeah. Just kind of a little, like speaks to how meaningless that term has become. Yeah. Um, and so tell me about our, our intuition with food. Cause there's the obvious stuff that you're like, Oh, yeah. that's natural. It's an absolutely. apple. And absolutely. And that, that is so like, there are times when our intuition about the, about a food, a natural food also being healthy happens to be true. And that's true with fresh produce, certainly. Like you see an apple in the store, it's natural. It also happens to be healthy. Um, <laughs> but it's, that's just not the case with a lot of other products, even though, you know, you buy, I think, I don't, I think the example I gave in the paper was apple juice, like in contrast to whole apples mm -hmm. was that you see all natural apple juice okay, it's made of apples, theoretically, but it's also just, it's got so much, it's loaded with sugar and preservatives and other things that are not, quote, natural. And it also takes away the things that are beneficial about the apple, like the fiber and other things that make apples really, really healthy for you. So people conflate, just because something is all, all I'm saying is just because something is all natural doesn't necessarily imply in any way that it's healthy. Or, mm -hmm. or good or good for the environment or wholesome or any other good adjective you can apply. It doesn't natural does not mean that in the context of food marketing. Yeah. And I think that the confusion around the word natural is very similar to the confusion around the word organic. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, I, I was in the grocery store and I heard this little boy ask his mom what, what it, why she got the organic chicken. Right. And she said, oh, organic means that the chicken lived a really happy life and mm -hmm. was never in a cage and, and all of these other, like she told a story about oh, this yeah. chicken. Yeah. And I was standing there like, Oh, none of that is true. <laughs> it's absolutely, yeah. And I think it, uh, my, my theory anyway, is that because like the word natural, 
the word organic seems healthy. It seems good. It seems better than, than inorganic. And so people can ascribe a lot of things to the organic label that are not actually true because they feel true. They feel Mm -hmm. like they, it feels like it should be true. Yeah. I mean, so people are able to do that. Yeah. Totally. I mean, for years, I thought that um, organic was better for the planet. I did too. I absolutely did too. Yeah. I was all about it. Um, And then I started taking more science classes, to be honest. And I was like, oh, is, is that how organic farms work? Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk a, a little bit about that, about how organic and natural are maybe not always the best environmental choices. For example, you blew my mind with vanilla. <laughs> yeah, so vanilla. Vanilla um, has never been so exciting, you guys. <laughs> It is, it's, it is hey, in the chocolate strawberry. It is, it is it is spicy. Move over. Oh, oh yeah. Know. Move over, <laughs> chocolate. Vanilla's in town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. So essentially, vanilla. So how how do I begin? Vanilla. So everyone knows how ubiquitous vanilla is. It's everywhere. It's mm-hmm. in food. It's in candles. It's in room freshening sprays it's in deodorant it's in everything that you could possibly think of including all sorts of food so natural so one thing i do want to say is natural flavors are not inherently unsustainable to to make they're made in a different way than quote artificial flavors even though they are fundamentally they are the same chemical So like the primary chemical component of vanilla is called vanillin. And if you make that chem, if you synthesize that chemical in a lab, that would be considered an artificial flavor. Whereas if you make that chemical by fermentation, that would be considered a natural flavor. Even though it's exactly, it's literally exactly the same thing. Okay. I'm I'm very confused. Are you not? doing the fermentation in a lab <laughs> like what? well so that's the thing that's yes <laughs> yes you you and and circle gets the square you have hit the nail on the head there it is it is extremely so there there is actually is an entire like cottage industry of of these flavor houses that will ferment natural flavors um because there's such a market for them and again yeah. i don't i don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here Though that's not inherently unsustainable in and of itself. Fermentation is no worse for the environment than synthesizing it in a lab. But it just goes to show that people don't understand that there's no difference. And well, it's unsustainable in one way, in that fermentation can can be, it's not always, but it can be more expensive. Mm. Um, so it's so it's unsustainable economically. But in terms of environmental impacts, I would say they're about about the same. Except okay. Yeah, they're probably about the same. I mean, minor differences, but yeah, they're probably about the same environmental impacts. But one way that a natural flavor, and specifically with vanilla, um, one way that a natural flavor is produced and often is, if you're talking things like, you know, French vanilla ice cream or things like that, or even whole vanilla beans, is you have to harvest it directly, the, the vanilla bean directly from the vanilla orchid plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and vanilla orchids are very, very, um, they're, they're in danger. 
they they're it's not a, a crop that has a very stable um stable base there's only two i think there's only two um varieties that are very closely related that are used for commercial vanilla production um, and they're incredibly closely related. They don't like, so basically if there's a disease or anything, that's it. It'll wipe out pretty much the entire crop of vanilla overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also that they are, they rely on, uh, on just, I think one or two bee species to pollinate. They can't self pollinate really by themselves. So they need bees and those bees are also in danger. So because of climate change, because hello. Um, and then also the, the other biggest thing is the, tr- vanilla is a tropical plant. So it grows on tropical islands, which as we know, tend to get the brunt of, you know, climate fueled weather disasters and whatnot. So the, just all across the board, trying to harvest vanilla from the vanilla orchid is really, really harmful. And, can, and, and there's also, a lot of like economic uh, harms that come because it's very it's it's really valuable. So people steal it a lot of times. So there's the, the these crazy sort of black market of vanilla thieves um, all over in Madagascar and all of these countries that where vanilla is a primary export and, and a really big source of you know economic vitality in these countries is vanilla. And so it's again it would it would require a kind of a deft hand to move away from that so that you don't like economically decimate these these countries that are very reliant on vanilla and I'm not trying to say like we just need to abolish all vanilla orchids like that's not that's not <laughs> what I'm saying at all um but I do think being more mindful about it especially because we can get the exact same thing without all of the harms that this creates and without risking wiping out an entire species of orchid just for for human consumption yeah that's um like it's it's so wild to imagine because it is it is so ubiquitous it like, is I, it is I, 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 will, I will say too only only i think only about one percent if memory serves of vanilla is made with with fresh vanilla beans Mm -hmm. vanilla beans that are harvested directly from the vanilla orchids but vanilla is everywhere yeah Yeah. so it is even one percent has a huge 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 impact well and so we did we have wiped out species for human consumption right we did it with bananas yeah oh yeah bananas (laughs) so bananas (laughs) are interesting um so yeah before um before about the 1950s, or in the 1930s, maybe, bananas were not a thing that people had outside the Caribbean because they weren't able to be transported across the ocean. So no one else, like we think of bananas now as just a common staple, but mm-hmm. you know, not that long ago, bananas were not, had never been you know, sold commercially just because they weren't, they, they weren't capable of being transported. And that changed when they started uh, developing and, and growing a species, a particular variety of banana called the Gros Michel banana or Big Mike, as it was affectionately known. Um, and Big Mike was 
fantastic. It like basically it, it was it had a lot of physical properties that made it so that it was able to withstand the journey from the Caribbean. Um, and it ended up being be, they ended up becoming really really popular in in the U.S. and commercially available. And you know everyone all of a sudden every, everyone was all about bananas. Um, and did, did they go bananas was, for bananas? Bananas. Oh, very good. I'm point, sorry. Point, I love a bad pun. Point for, to carry point on. Tara, point for Tara. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I love it. But no, yeah. So they were, so basically because this one variety of banana was the only one that was feasible to be sold in the U S and because it became such an amazing um, success in the U.S. They grew the Gros Michel as a monoculture, which means that literally large swaths of land entirely planted with one crop. Mm -hmm. And they're all genetically identical. So what mm -hmm. happens with that, the danger of that is that if there's a disease, then because all of the plants are identical, there's nothing to stop the disease from just decimating the entire crop. And that's exactly what happened to the Gromy shell. Uh, it was hit very hard by a fungal disease. And then it um, basically, it was essentially left extinct after a time. And in fact, so two things, two fun facts about that, um, that first of all, it actually inspired, the shortage of bananas was so immediate that it actually inspired a 1940s novelty song called Yes, We Have No Bananas. <laughs> I've heard this song and yeah, I never it's, understood it's, it until now. So that's why the Grow Shell, you can blame monocultures for that one. <laughs> and the other, um, the other fun fact is that is why fake banana flavor doesn't taste like the bananas we have now. <gasps> you they stole my anecdote. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. No, they taste. No, it's they, totally fine. They taste. They taste like the Gros Michel, instead of the yeah. banana we have now, which is called the Cavendish. And the Cavendish has so far, so far, has been immune to a lot of the issues that took down the Gros Michel. Um, but that is so, most scientists say it's also grown. By the way, also grown as a monoculture, the Cavendish these days. So it's it's most scientists agree it's only a matter of time before the entire banana industry collapses again because the Cavendish will will fall because it's there we don't we haven't learned that growing monocultures is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, this is this is true um, and that's part of why I'm having you on. But yeah, I um that was one of the things that actually really got me um, more curious about like food marketing and PR was because in one of my, back when I thought I was going to be a scientist, mm. um, in one of my, I mean, it was like Chem 101, maybe Chem 102. Like uh -huh. it, it was not a high level class. Right. Um, and we were in lab and- And you made banana our, flavor? Our professor, yeah, our professor was like, I have a surprise for you guys today. I'm not telling you the purpose of what we're doing you have to guess and we're okay. all like okay and so we're in there and every, you know everyone's in their little groups at their bench and eventually we all kind of get to the same part of the experiment at the same time and the entire lab <laughs> filled with banana smell <laughs> and what was actually quite nice it wasn't like was it? Okay, overwhelming overripe no, banana it was the banana just, flavor like, is one of those that you need like two drops to fill like a swimming pool <laughs> oh yeah, which which is why it was easy for us to make the entire room smell like banana. Sure. 
Um, and we all, it was so funny. It was like, we all just kind of started looking at each other. Like, am I having a stroke? Are you having a stroke? <laughs> what's going on? Do you smell bananas? Um, like, yeah. <laughs> you smell lemons when you die? What's happening? Um, and like, I guess the entire class silently looked at the professor at the same time. And he was standing there smiling and he goes, congratulations, you've all just made artificial banana flavor. <laughs> and, and then he told it. us that the reason we don't recognize the taste is not because artificial flavors, it's not because like there's something wrong with them chemically. No, it's just based on an old banana. <laughs> yeah, it's just based on a banana that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I just was like super fascinated by that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so that, that made, that, that got me really more interested into how we make food and what we consider artificial, because right. if I can make banana flavor, like, yeah, it, I, it suddenly was not that scary anymore. That's, yeah, um, that I think is the thing that often gets lost. I think part of the reason people cling to things that seem natural is because, there's we need to kind of demystify science and scientific process for people because the unknown is scary so if people don't know how science works they're going to be scared of it oh yeah i mean it's you know we've we've seen that with just about anything in any field like i mean if you, yeah most recently and most splashily vaccines yes I mean, and, and it's it's basic human instinct, which I can understand because, you know, back in our hunter gatherer days when other stuff could eat us on a pretty regular basis, fear was a good thing to feel. Yeah. It kept you alive. No, that was that that wasn't just irrational. That was horse sense, you know? Yeah. And but so now, you know, and I think especially as, um, you know, over time, we as human beings have been able to specialize our knowledge to such extreme levels that it is really hard for some people to communicate what they're doing because communication is a skill by itself Agreed. and i and and i'm sorry but you know scientists and uh certain companies they just don't have a good PR team, but I, organic I does have a good no, PR so team. So that actually it's dovetails. Yeah, it's a billion dollar Absolutely. industry. And I do, and, I want to put a pin in that thought that you just had though about science communication and, and come back to that if mm -hmm. we are pivoting back to GMOs at a later time. Oh, I was going to go there now. You want to go there now. Okay, perfect. <laughs> if you don't you're mind. One, no, you're one step like, ahead of me. You're one step ahead of me. I feel like it's just perfect. naturally, it's natural, naturally natural, flowing. Organically towards, flowing. Yeah. Organically and naturally flowing. <laughs> yes. Towards no, that's whole... perfect. That's exactly what I was going to say. Because I, I genuinely yeah. believe that GMOs are one of the biggest failures of science communication ever mm -hmm. in history. If not the biggest, one of the biggest. Um, I, and yeah, cause people are scared of them. And, but the thing, first of all, just as a threshold issue for GMOs to anyone who is scared of them, I want you to think about next time you go get broccoli or vegetables in the store, tell me that those crops have not been selectively bred. 
tell me that those are exactly the crops. Like, I mean, actually do yourself a favor, look up a picture <laughs> of what corn looked like before the advent of agriculture. And tell me the corn you see in the store is the same corn. Yeah, I mean, we so have been... Selective breeding we... has been around for centuries. Yeah, and there wouldn't be it's a nothing... billion people without it. Exactly. There's nothing scary about selective breeding. And I don't think people would think selective breeding is scary. And yet, when you add in the, the, the science aspect of it, even though it always was science, when you add in mm -hmm. a, a guy in a lab coat tinkering... <laughs> All a, of a, a sudden, white guy in a lab coat. <laughs> a white guy in a lab coat. Absolutely yeah. right. Um, then all of a sudden it becomes very scary, even though all that's happened, really, it's not, it's still selective breeding. It's just more targeted. Which often gives us better results. Absolutely. Like, I think right? that's the thing that people, people are very quick to dismiss GMOs because mm -hmm. all they see are these sort of people, frankenfoods, they used to be called, or they still yeah. are, I think. Sometimes people call them that. Um, and I remember once upon a time, there was these, um, something made the rounds when the internet was still very much, as we, the internet as we know it anyway, was still very much in its infancy. And someone posted or put a story online that went fairly viral about a, um, a GMO strawberry do you remember this? A GMO strawberry that they were splicing with like some like shark DNA or something like a, a, a some I don't like an art like some 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 fish that lived in very cold oceans. I thought and... it was a tomato in a fish. Oh, maybe it was a. I thought it was a strawberry. I have a I have a very um solid image of a tomato with a syringe and like fish in the syringe oh maybe in my, maybe like, instilled in my brain yeah so but anyway was, that's yeah not... but it was very yeah. it was it was so like people were terrified of that because they were like ew fish in my fruit when in re first of all no one was actually doing that like <laughs> i mean there was no there, there was no evidence that anyone was actually trying but they, basically the the, the the article stated that the reason people were trying to do that is to make the fruit, whatever it was, whether it was a strawberry or tomato, more resistant to cold temperatures. So that was the whole premise of this thing. But first of all, A, like I said, no one was actually doing that. Right. And B, like, even if they were, like, it wouldn't be nearly as gross as you think it would. <laughs> like, it wouldn't, there wouldn't actually be a fish in your tomato. Like, like the fact, the fact that you, it just, it, it, it genuinely confounds me that that's what people think, you know? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of, um, confirmation bias because if you have mm -hmm. the naturalistic fallacy, you're like, oh, of course we shouldn't be doing that. Yes. You know, we're playing God, we're doing this, we're doing that. And I'm like, you know, I, one thing I struggle with is that it, it emphasizes this concept that humans and nature are separate when in mm -hmm. fact we are not. Agreed. Right? And everything we do and everything we have comes from this planet. Right. Where else would it come from? I'm saying. Um, and so like if we're going to be 
breeding crops and livestock yeah to to get certain traits right we want the we we want a better nutritional value we want a better flavor nothing is wrong with that and we've been doing it since you know, since Gregor Mendel has been playing with peas since exactly, before then. Exactly. I and... mean, I, I was thinking too, like even I think I would imagine selective breeding of dogs must go back further than that even. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone, your pets are GMOs. Oh, <laughs> like, hell yeah. And, hell yeah. and honestly, are. some of them are mistakes. Okay. So <laughs> some of those animals are living really uncomfortable lives because you think a squished nose is cute. And, you yeah. know, you Agreed. don't care that your, your German shepherd has arthritis in their yeah. hips because all right. that is is inbreeding. Right. Whereas when you're working with genetics, a lot of the times, and the only reason I know this is because my husband works with genetics, um, a lot of the time what you're doing is you're looking at an organism, right, whether it's a broccoli or a fungus, mm-hmm. and you're saying, oh, these are the genes that it has. But mm-hmm. just like us, not all of our genes are expressed. Right. Right? So you sometimes you're just turning on a gene that's already there. Yeah. Which seems pretty close to natural. That's not even... That, that like, could happen because of a mutation. That could just occur. Yeah. And, and also, I know people get a little squeamish around the word mutation, but genetic mutations happen... All the time. Natu- it's yeah, naturally. Get, naturally. Happen, Genetic mutations happen. are natural. Yeah, yeah. And my favorite fun fact about mutations is blue eyes. Every <laughs> single person on the planet who has blue eyes is a descendant of one woman who had the first genetic mutation that turned her eyes blue from brown in Central Europe about six to 10,000 years ago. Really? Wow. Yes. That is incredible. Um, Right? I yeah. just, I mean, I'm a blue-eyed person, and I read hey. that once, and so yeah. it stuck with me. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, mutation really just means change right. in this sense. Yeah. Um, so in a way, we're all GMOs, because when two mm-hmm. adults make a baby, you're, you're changing up the DNA, and little mutations are happening, and voila, you made your own bundle of GMO. <laughs> Yeah. So yes, absolutely. I mean, so I I do think I've heard too, I don't, I'm not as familiar with this, but I've heard in general that in Europe and the UK specifically, that GMOs are incredibly, incredibly unpopular, more so than they are in the US. Um, And I always, I, I mean, I think it is, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, for me to comprehend that only because like, as you and I have discussed, like it, there, there's really nothing scary about it. Um, except for it being unknown. Because... Except for it being unknown, but it's, but we can fix that with consumer education, you know, especially what we're trying to do right now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I do think, I do think people, but people have this very visceral reaction to GMOs mm-hmm. and, okay. and I think, part of that i don't there must have been people actively against it because otherwise people would have just not even known i don't i actually don't know how that movement started that anti-gmo movement really started but i want to guess that it was um marketing and money 
Well, because... I mean, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, yeah. when in when in doubt, it probably is. Yeah, when in doubt, follow the money. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Like or, organic, I forget how many billions of dollars a year is going on in the organic industry, mm-hmm. but it's it's huge. It's huge, yeah. Um, but it has it has customer trust. Yeah. You know, and and that's really the the difference because you think you know what it is. Yeah. And let's talk and- about that for a second. We think we know what organic means. Oh, we do not. We think we know what natural means. Yeah. Um, like the mom I talked about in the grocery store before. Yeah. She thought organic meant Free absolutely yeah. no. Yeah, the organic chickens. She thought yeah. it meant absolutely no pesticides, insecticides, yeah. herbicides. She thought it meant zero chemical input whatsoever. And you can all go on the USDA website right now and see the list of all the organic pesticides, inputs. Herbicides, insecticides, yeah. fungicides, everything. It's, it's and again, a pretty long list. Yeah. And as, as as we discussed earlier, the line between what's natural and what's synthetic is often very blurry. So you yeah. can like so for example, I mean, I don't I actually don't know if this is the case for, for things like pesticides, but I can't imagine it would be any different that you can make more or less the same pesticide in a natural way or in a synthetic way. And, and that is that, so the fact that, so I want to just say right up front, organic does not ban pesticides. Mm -hmm. You're allowed to use most with a couple of important exceptions. You're allowed to use most natural pesticides, not synthetic pesticides. So again, that is, that is a really important distinction there that it's not pesticide free. It just means you're Mm -hmm. allowed to use only natural pesticides. And, and there have been studies. There have been studies that show that synthetic pesticides actually are because science is cool and does good things. Synthetic pesticides are are more effective. They're safer. They like so. There's no. I mean, I'm not saying across the board. I'm saying that there are synthetic pesticides that are safer than the natural alternatives that are out there. Yeah, and and the thing about them being more effective. This is one of the reasons that. Um, I'm having you on this ocean-based show, and we've barely we have not. I know actually we barely scratched the, the surface about yet. that. I know, um, but but this is why. So people are going to think, oh, you know, a natural pesticide or herbicide or fungicide or insect or whatever, whatever. that's going to be okay. That's not going to hurt the environment. Um, bad news. Wrong. Absolutely. It false. absolutely will because you're alt you're altering the nutrient level in the ecosystem right mm-hmm. so farm runoff right they put the input on the farm it rains they irrigate however the water gets there it runs off to the rivers the rivers go to the ocean right and so when you have excess nutrients it doesn't matter if they're natural or organic they are mm-hmm. still excess nutrients yeah and so they're going to feed algae mm-hmm. And then the algae population is going to explode and you're like, oh, but it's algae, it's natural. Well, okay, that size of an algae population is not natural, quote mm-hmm. unquote, right? We artificially gave it excess nutrients and now the algae is using all of the air in the water and that creates a dead zone because the other life that lives in the water 
can't breathe and it suffocates and it dies. And, you know, that's how you get the dead zone at the bottom of the Mississippi, where the Mississippi goes into the Delta and into the Gulf of Mexico. And I was there once in Louisiana, walking along a beach on a very sticky, balmy day. Um, And all of a sudden, all of these fish washed up dead on the beach. That's part of a dead zone. And so buying organic is not actually helping the ocean. No. And, and it depends, you know, I mean, I know it's hard to like figure out which crop and this and that and like which pesticide, blah, blah, blah. You can't, I mean, you can't know, unfortunately. No. Um, Yeah, I would say too, yeah, there's, there's no, I would say, I don't know specifically about oceans and ocean health, but I don't think, I wouldn't think an organic, organic produce would be better or I don't think it'd be better or worse. I think it would be about the same in terms of ag runoff into the ocean. Well, and that was that's an interesting thing that I did look into a little bit because you mentioned that the organic um, inputs are often less effective. Um, they are, yeah. So you do, have some, often... so yes, you do have to use more more pesticides usually because they're less effective. And more and... is the problem. What? <laughs> Yeah, so more, more, more is, is the problem more, because then you so, get more runoff oh, right. yeah, from the sense. organic so, farm um, than from the conventional I'm, I'm, farm. No, you're right. You're right. That's true. and you're just like Shit. well, also, also too. Don't forget, as we were discussing, like GMOs, GMO crops can have a lot of benefits, and they can be bred to be resistant to pests and diseases, which would eliminate the need for a lot of pesticides. But organic farms can't use GMO crops, so on two on two fronts, they do have a, a higher um, a higher rate of pesticide use, yeah. um, but I'll, but I don't. I, what I was saying, I don't think the the organic pesticides themselves are necessarily better or worse than synthetic ones. I think if it, runoff is runoff, there's probably more from organic farms, but the pesticides are probably about about on an equal footing. Sure. So, um, but yeah. So so for those of you concerned about farm runoff. Yeah, organic is not the way to go. No. Um and and yeah, I mean that's that that is the tie-in here for our, our ocean story. <laughs> um but you know, I did feel like this is this is really critical because everything we're talking about for, you know, the food labeling, whether it's mm-hmm. organic or natural or what, um this all translates to seafood labeling whether it's you know is it wild caught is it farmed even what species of fish it is when you're in the supermarket it can it is often labeled incorrectly so you Mm -hmm. don't even know if you're buying the sustainable fish Uh, right the monterey bay aquarium says this one's okay no absolutely there was i read i remember reading like a hilarious hilarious article i think it was in the new york times going back many years about this particular issue about how seafood is just so often mislabeled um that people don't know even if you're buying tilapia like you're not guaranteed that it's tilapia it could easily be something else and yeah it's just it's amazing to me And, and i get it listen consumers food we have to make food buying decisions so much and in such mm-hmm. volume, we just don't have time to fact check everything. And I get that. 
Like I'm not trying to, yeah. I'm not trying like, it's not like buying a new mattress or a new car that you do once every 10 years or whatever. You don't have to, you, you have time to research those kind of products. Food, you don't have time. No, you, you need yeah. to eat now. You're hangry. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, your kid is screaming, put something in its mouth. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know? Exactly. So no, I don't, no, I don't, no, I'm no. not, I, I don't, I don't begrudge consumers for not being no. more aware or making more, making more informed buying choices because the, we don't have time and companies purposefully kind of hide the ball because it's easier for them to do that. Oh, absolutely. So, and this is, this is the point of your paper too. Um, you know, this is, this is why we need a sustainable food label. Yes. And, and across the board, because, you know, I, I want to talk about what, what a sustainable f- food label would mean for our agricultural practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and also from an environmental justice standpoint, mm-hmm. because you you know you mentioned in your paper about golden rice, how yeah. it is a genetically modified rice that literally saves the lives of children. Yeah, right. Um, and there's also the other issue of the fact that, as you mentioned before, things like bananas and a lot of crops that come from these tropical regions. Um, you know, they're being hit the hardest by climate change. Absolutely. And so if Americans and Europeans are going to exercise their privilege of choosing what food they do and do not want to eat, you know, if you're telling Africans, I don't want your GMO food, and they're like, well, this is all I can grow because of climate change. Yeah. Because I need this crop to be drought resistant. Yeah. You know, like there's there's a serious disconnect Absolutely. Um, happening. Yeah. Now, and, obviously, your paper is just about food labeling in the United States, so we don't yes. need to go totally balls to the wall on it. <laughs> but we all get the idea. Like we do put labels on imported foods as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So um, the floor. <laughs> Wow. Well, there was a lot in that question. Where would you like me to start? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no it's fine. Do you want Let me, me just to... put the whole world on your plate and please <laughs> unpack it for okay, us. Thank so, you. So do you want me to, should I discuss golden rice in a little more detail or is that something you feel like oh, yes. your listeners yes, are aware Yes, let's of? clarify what the okay, hell I was so talking yes. about so, yes. you can answer my question <laughs> so, in a meaningful way. Yes. Yeah, so golden rice, um, it was, again, I mean, going back to the sort of abject failure of GMOs as a, as an exercise in science communication, not, no, not the abject failure, like that would be a perfect place to cut, by the way, just given the abject, <laughs> given the abject failure of GMOs and podcasts, <laughs> no, the abject failure of GMOs as a science communication experiment, because it's truly where it failed, um, golden rice. Um, so essentially, um, you know, Doctors Without Borders and a lot of other agencies were finding that in developing countries, uh, children had really severe vitamin A deficiencies, um, which was causing a lot of them to lose their sight um, and also their lives if the deficiency was bad enough. So scientists developed a strain of rice uh, with had, that had was essentially enriched with vitamin A. It was a GMO, 
uh, I feel like it's important to state. <laughs> um, but it, so it was, it was a GMO. And it, the reason it's called golden rice is because literally the, the extra vitamin A gave it a really distinctive golden hue. Uh, so it's called golden rice. And they started saying, okay, hey, we've developed this rice that can be, it's rice is a staple in these countries. It can be easily distributed. It, it's not perishable. It doesn't, it can just be added to children's diets. And there's no advert. The all they did was add vitamin A. I mean, I'm 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 making the scientific process sound a lot simpler than it actually is. I'm sh it took years and years and years to develop the strain of rice, but that's all the that's the only change they made was adding vitamin A. Everything about the rice is exactly exactly the same. It's rice. So you can do you can do everything you would do with normal rice. You can do with golden rice. So they were finding that they were offering golden rice to these developing countries and they were getting refused. They were saying, no, we're not, we're not going to bring in golden rice because it's a GMO and we don't think it's safe. And it's also been met because it was so, um, because it was genetically modified. There's, there's, and because people, there was such a backlash to GMOs at the time, a lot of countries, and enacted essentially legislation that says that banned GMOs as by the way, organic does. So the US does not exactly have clean hands here. Mm -hmm. um, the US also has that kind of legislation, although it is voluntary. It's not meant, it's not, it's not a mandate where in other countries it's been like GMOs have just been met with incredibly burdensome regulations. And it's, um, yeah, so the the this golden rice has never really been able to to be used on a wide scale, and it's had really untold impacts on on developing countries because these children, there's vitamin A deficiencies still exist. They're not that mm -hmm. it did that we had the fix and we didn't use it. So it's very sad to me, and that that that's that the thing that stopped. that destroyed lives by taking none of if even if all, all that happened is someone lost their vision that's an incredibly incredibly hard disability to to have and at worst they lose their lives i mean and we don't want to fix that problem because we're scared of scientists like that mm -hmm. it's it's just it's it's very it's very distressing to me that that's that that's the reality that we live in Ironically, and this is where my very dark humor comes out, uh, they're dying natural deaths. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. Right? I mean, that's because so we can't, we, we can't afford, no, it's, it's a GMO. absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I mean, it's so, and, it's very sad that that's, that that's, that that is the case, but it's true. Like people would rather yeah. die on that hill of literally we, dying. We, we can't, we can't have GMOs in our food supply then literally save lives like and, it's, and the it, lives and let's emphasize the lives of children second. under five the lives of children yes. under five. <laughs> like, yeah toddlers toddlers literal children yeah and, and, it, uh, yeah so it's it's it's, it's, it's pretty absurd that 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 is what because truthfully like people agree that that the fact that it was gmo is what mm -hmm. stopped golden rice from actually being used on a global scale 
Yeah, I feel like I feel like Golden Rice is like the the poster child. Of, it is absolutely of the failure of science communication, mm-hmm. um, and just and how far people are willing to go to avoid GMOs. I that they're willing to let children die. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's really mind blowing, and I think that you know it, it makes me wonder what what exactly they think is gonna happen if they eat GMOs? I mean, that's the thing that I don't understand is like, there are literal children dying. Like, what else have you got to lose? You know, right? Like, what what is the worst outcome that you're so afraid of? The worst outcome is is already Yeah, the worst outcome is already happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on that happy on that, note yes on that upbeat let's, note, yeah let's transition real quick so when i imagine and you can you can get into the the legalities of of it a bit more but when i imagine a sustainability label mm-hmm. um you know this is we're going beyond organic yeah. right well um, I, I also do want to emphasize by the way that people do people really do think that organic means better for the environment Oh like, yeah, that's a really yeah, and... common misconception, and I want to clarify that right up front. Like, and I, I get believe me when I say I get pushback on that. Like when I, whenever I oh. say that to people, I, ha- I, people are like, no, organic is definitely better for the environment. I'm like, I literally wrote a thirty-page paper on that topic. <laughs> I can guarantee you, it is not. Yeah, and that's <laughs> like... honestly, I, I fear talking about this with me people. Me too. Me too. Um, like it's because it's it is terrible. it is something that impacts us every day multiple times a day especially mm-hmm. when we have like we eat multiple times a day we have to go to the grocery store and it is extremely personal Absolutely. and it is you know it's also you know for those it's what you feed your family yes and you know it i read I, I looked for it because I wanted to share it in the show notes and I could not find it because I read okay. it years ago. But there was um, an article written about uh, this new term called self-righteous eaters. <laughs> yeah. And it was people who, you, they don't just get extreme in like their personal choice of diet, whether it's like I'm 100% organic all the time or I'm a vegan or right. something else. Um but they make a point of like actively trying to shame other people and guilt other people mm-hmm. for not making their choice. Yeah. Um, and I think that generally in the US, there's also been very much of a call out culture. Like you're not doing enough. You're not doing yeah. this right. You're not doing that Agreed. right. Like look at you not at, versus a call in culture of like, hey, by the way, what you said could be considered racist. Here's yeah. why, yeah. you know, and like let give people a chance to learn something. Right. Absolutely. Right. And so when it comes to food, it is, it is like this spicy hot topic. Um, mm-hmm. But the, uh, I forget where I was going with that. Well, <laughs> the, but yeah, like, you know, you say, you say organic's not better for the environment and people freak out. People because flip out. Because they're trying so hard to do yeah. what's right for the environment and to do what's right for their family. And then you find out 
that you've been bamboozled. And so I want to, for anyone, for anyone who might be feeling that way, I want to be very clear. Food companies have entire teams devoted only to making you buy their product and feel good about buying it. If you were bamboozled by that team, that's understandable. Of professionals? Yeah, yeah. Of, and who have nothing better to do, whose life work it is to get you to buy their product. That is yeah. no, there's no shame in being bamboozled by that. It's designed to bamboozle you. <laughs> totally. So and this is, this is why I care so much about policy is yes. to prevent the marketing bamboozling, yeah. which is so fun to say bamboozle yes. Bamboo um, is bamboozle a real word it should be if it's not i think i think it is um, <laughs> it should be it is i, de I decree i decree it's a word now <laughs> thank you it's official yes. um but so so for me to avoid the bamboozling yes. when i think of a sustainable label yes it makes me think it makes me think that um the food whether it is grown on land or at sea, mm -hmm. what it means to me is that that food is not at minimum, not harming the environment, mm -hmm. not harming our ability to feed the next generation. Right. And at best, environmentally beneficial. Absolutely. And I am a total nerd about restorative farming on land and sea and so right. that is what i envision and it's also quite equitable because you know who farms matters mm -hmm. and you can create more jobs you can grow more food from yeah. a smaller amount of land which means right. we could also rewild a lot of current farmland absolutely um so that's that's my fantasy mm -hmm. you can tell me how it works legally so <laughs> Um, I, I completely share that fantasy. I do think one, one thing I do feel like sometimes does get somewhat lost in that conversation is people assume, and there's a kernel of truth to it, but it's not the entire truth. People assume that smaller local farm is always, always the answer when you're dealing with the, you know, what if it's something that you want, and I'm not saying that that's not a very good option. It is, absolutely. If you're looking for a sustainable option, getting food that was produced close by to you in a sustainable way is one of the best options we have right now. But that scale in itself is not sustainable. Just if all farms were like that, it would not be sustainable. It, just because we would need, there's too many people. The supply chains are too, are too robust. They exist for a reason. And scaling up in terms of other, in, in other ways, not in ways, in, but scaling up sustainably. Scaling up in things like, I think one, one uh, piece of technology that I'm really excited about that I wrote about in the paper is cultured meats. Oh, like, yeah. I think, I think that's super exciting. And that's a way that we can eliminate not only the land use that's mm -hmm. devoted to cattle, 
uh, but also all of the environmental impacts, all the methane and every, whatever else cattle does for the environment, not to mention just ethically speaking, it's better to not kill animals for food. Um, I, mean, I mean, let's be honest, we're all, I mean, even people who are dyed in the wool carnival, 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 carnivores, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. So even people who are really, really like, like I, I eat meat and I'm proud of it, must feel a little bit like ethically weird about eating animals. It's a little strange. So Yeah. I mean, I, I see how some people are like, well, it's a circle of life. Like you're not going to tell the lion that it can't eat well, the Well, okay. Gazelle. Next time, next time you want to go hunt down a cow with a spear, I'm all for that. Oh, go yeah. for it. <laughs> with but, a spear. Jesus. I mean, <laughs> sounds so violent. If that's, if that's what you want, great. Then you have, you have my blessing. But if you're, but anything else, if you buy meat in the grocery store, yeah. like there's gonna, you're not hunting anymore. No, oh, no, no, that's no, full, no. That's full on gathering at that point. That's like, full on. <laughs> like... Well, and so, and so like, I, to go back to cultured meats. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I love, I also love the idea of cultured meats, um, you know, and, and for scaling, um, one of the things that actually does have me really excited about regenerative farms and um, polyculture farming where you're growing more than one crop yes. in the same area yeah, is that it, re it regenerates the soil it's yes. a carbon sink blah 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 but also you know depending on how you do it it can be scaled massively like the giant aztec empire yes they were they were doing agroforestry you couldn't tell where their farm began and the jungle forest ended mm -hmm. like everything there they were cultivating it was yeah. either food or medicine and it was an empire yeah you know and there's there's all of these um you know traditional ecological knowledge sure of how we can live in harmony with the environment yes and like you know i'm all for using all the tools agreed I, absolutely 100 and it's it's funny this is something i don't know i it just occurred to me too, like as you're describing the way that the Aztecs planted, like it occurs to me that the way we farm a lot of time is very much in opposition to what nature wants. And it's so it's so it's but, like but at the same time, the like people, people are not people are not enraged about the unnaturalness of that. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why are, my... why are GMOs so much worse than tearing down forests to plant corn. I know, right? Like m one of my absolute favorite people on this planet um, is Bren Smith. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I quote him a lot. Um, but, you know, I was reading his book about eating like a fish and, you know, like yeah. what it what basically we have to ask ourselves, how does the ecosystem want to support us? Yes, exactly. And nature shall we call her mother nature, mother nature? she abhors a monoculture yes like it's that is so unnatural and that is why it's so hard yeah and yet there hasn't been the widespread outrage about it mm -hmm. as as compared yeah. to something like gmos and even to a certain extent cultured meats is still a new technology but it's been it's had some people who have thought ew it's off-putting i don't want to i don't want to eat that it sounds gross um, where, whereas it's not like, it's, it's just fully not gross. 
um it's really yeah. cool as a matter of fact um but yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know why there hasn't been the the why people haven't really grasped on to things like monocultures in the same way that they have with gmos and i think part of it is that it's there's a there's a disgust element i think that comes from tinkering mm -hmm. whereas monoculture is like it's not it's certainly not natural but it's not yeah. disgusting in the same way <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not saying GMOs are disgusting, but some people do feel that way. Some people feel yeah, they're, yeah, of they're very off-putting. Yeah. And, and the thing is like with the monocultures, it's, I mean, there is, I think a bit of a movement around soy because it is so environmentally oh, detrimental. It's horrible. Growing soy is just a disaster. Oh, and, and listeners, I know you can't see us. But the reaction on Julian's face when I said soy, I mean, her hands flew up in the air. Her eyes got as big as saucers. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna include a link in the Sorry, no, I have no, please because, don't. Because, because we I have no, I have no poker face. I'm sorry. No, it's great. It's great. I love it. Um, oh, it's awful. Yeah, no, soy, not, soy, is soy is terrible. Soy is terrible. It's terrible such a water hog we are destroying the environment so that we can grow soy i'm sorry vegans <laughs> you know what you're not helping you are not helping like, you're that's, not that's helping. the thing like i mean people often do think like oh a vegan diet must be like the best thing for the environment and like yeah cutting down on meat consumption is absolutely a good environmental choice but adding mm -hmm. soy is not the answer <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> like, yeah. if, well, you, and, if your primary and, concern is environmentalism, right? Soy is not a good thing to have. No, no, no. And it, it goes back again to you know, if you want to eat in a, an environmentally friendly way, you need to ask yourself, or we need to. I mean, I'm sorry, we're in a system that we didn't create, but we got to fix it, right? We need to ask ourselves, what does the ecosystem want us to grow? Sure. You know, and there are, there, not all soil is created equal. Right. So there are people who live in places where they cannot grow crops, but they can graze cattle. Yes. Right? Like, so you, you have to work with the environment in which you live in mm -hmm. order for both of you to flourish. Absolutely. If you're like, oh, well, I don't want to kill animals, so I'm going to have a bunch of soy everywhere because I need this protein. You, and then you destroy this whole habitat and now the animals can't live there anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, you know, reevaluating our role as a species in an ecosystem yeah. is what needs to happen. And Absolutely. I can understand how people are like, oh, well, if I, you know, if I make this black and white choice, I'm doing the right thing because then you don't have to think about it anymore. Exactly. And as, as I said earlier, like people don't have time to make that many decisions about food. They want something they want to, yes. they want to have their rules and they want to stick to those rules. And yeah, that's fair. But I do think it, yeah. it needs a more nuanced approach. If you're truly looking for some, for a sustainable diet, it's, it does, it, it, it is more nuanced than, Oh, I'm just going to be vegan or I'm going to only I don't know what else would I don't even I don't even know what else would be considered like a I mean I guess there's like the locavore. Oh yeah, that's really hard. Like that's you need so time. hard. That's so hard. You need so much time to yeah. try to like 
yeah someone wrote a book like for a year she only ate food that was like grown and raised within a hundred miles of her it's so difficult it was an epic journey yeah um and, it, so, and that's, so, time, yeah. that's time most people just don't have no totally and and the other thing too is like you know there are certain things you can eat that's super beneficial to the planet like at some point someone's gonna talk to me on this podcast about being a nerd about restorative ocean farming like bivalves mussels scallops oysters clams yummy yes they're animals but if we cultivate them so many benefits to the entire ecosystem and i'm just gonna leave it at that no 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 please Please. No, 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 no. I could rent hours. <laughs> no, and we, we're, we're also, running short we, on time okay, now. We can't. We can't also discuss that without discussing something like seaweed and kelp. Oh, okay. I mean, okay, fine. Just, okay, fine. Just because, just because, like we were talking about soy and how terrible it is, seaweed could probably. I mean, it, it could replace soy, and it's so it actually does. It, it benefits the environment. Shh. Don't what? tell the soy lobbyists. <laughs> Although I do think, again, I think the biggest, probably one of the bigger issues with that, again, comes down to marketing. Because no oh, one, because yeah. people have accepted, okay, like a soy milk latte or whatever. I'm not sure people are going to readily accept a seaweed milk latte. I have to be honest. Well, okay, but here's proof. Marketing can totally turn that shit around. <laughs> um, pardon my French. So we have had... Yeah, in the 90s, um, and I am old enough to remember this. In the 90s, <laughs> McDonald's promoted their <gasps> I've lean heard burger. Of this. I've heard of it this. It was a kelp burger. Yeah. I mean, I think there was still meat in it, but like a large portion of it was kelp. And like some basketball team was like all about it. Yeah. And it was, it was a thing. And, and um, again, I think it just is going to boil down to education because kelp is already in a lot of our products like toothpaste and ice cream and mm-hmm. beauty products um and it's it's a culinary staple yeah. in a lot of other countries and it can be super tasty and i'm not just talking about your wakame salad and your sushi like no. there's so many things you can do with it it's absolutely fantastic yeah and it is like the most probably that I can think of the most sustainable thing you can eat because it's a huge carbon sink. Yes. It grows like two feet a day. Cultivating seaweed, even if you're not doing polyculture and you have other bivalves in there, um, it it creates habitat for for fish. They're like herring, for example, they lay their eggs on kelp fronds and other juvenile fish live in kelp forests until they get big and go out to sea so you're you're benefiting the ecosystem and fishers because Mm -hmm. some of these juvenile fish have commercial value right and so it's like oh my god oh my god i'm gonna (laughs) no i actually no one one small thing i don't remember who it was it was i think it was someone from the un or something like that. i heard a quote of someone who said that who said seaweed is the greatest weapon that we have to fight global hunger. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely. huge. I don't remember who that was either, but it it really is. And the accessibility yeah. as well for creating a seaweed farm and for making it, um, you know, equal access to employment mm-hmm. is, is amazing because 
it does not take a lot of equipment. Except, of it course, really because does. you go USA, it's a lot of times it's really hard to start kelp farms in the US because it's really it's regulated like hell. It's it's so inconsistent. Well, well, but that's the thing. It, it's almost in some cases it's like it doesn't exist. <laughs> So it's not regulated. So they don't yeah. even have a permitting process in right. some places. Okay. Wait, we're getting sidelined. Yeah, here. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I just published a paper on this shit. Yes, so we did. So we're going we're gonna to move on because that's a different episode. That is a different episode. Um, yes, indeed. But basically, the point of you and I discussing the naturalistic fallacy and your paper called The Natural Disaster is that... <laughs> Organic labeling is useless. It does not help the ocean. Yes. Okay. And... I will just one tiny caveat there. It do, yes, you're absolutely <laughs> right. It does not help the ocean. It doesn't do what people think it does. But right. because people have so glommed on to the organic label and have, have ascribed a lot of words to it that are not there, there are genuinely, there are producers that use, that get themselves certified as organic and also behave in sustainable ways. So there are producers yeah. who have organic, who have the organic seal, who are very sustainable, but the, all I'm saying is the organic labeling system does not require that. And more yeah. often than not, when you buy organic in the store, that's coming from a large factory farm and you can bet, you can be damn well sure that they are not keeping an eye on their sustainability practices. Yes. So that's, um, that's a little caveat yeah, there. Yeah. So. Which is, which is the point as well that the consumers can't know who is doing the organic that they wish they were buying and uh -huh. who is not. Yes. Thus the need for, for a sustainable label. food label. Yes. <laughs> Getting us back to the actual thesis of my paper. <laughs> Sorry. We should not be allowed to talk about food. <laughs> it's okay. This is this is the time and the place we're allowed to. Okay. Seriously. Um I and for anyone who's still listening, you guys deserve a chocolate <laughs> bar. I, I, I very, <laughs> an eco-friendly chocolate bar for making it this far. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I think we're interesting. <laughs> well, we're interesting to us. I don't know if we're interesting to anyone else. But <laughs> well, hopefully there's, hopefully there's, hopefully there's, there's, hopefully there's all, all, out so there that are getting all seven of you. I appreciate it getting their, their entertainment dollars worth this is free content so. it is free there we go that's what yeah that's yeah. that's that's it you get what you pay for people <laughs> anyway uh, okay so yes the sustainability label that i recommended in in my paper it essentially would work in much the same way that the organic label does because there's a lot of really there's a lot of good stuff in how it works um yeah, I, I was sort of in, in my own mind, I was kind of calling it organic 2.0, um, <laughs> like, like new and improved organic. Um, mm -hmm. That basically it would still it would function much like the organic label, that it would be voluntary. So you don't, farmers are not required to put, to get themselves certified under this program. And my, my reasoning for that was, A, it was mostly because you don't you don't want a system like this to become in itself economically unsustainable especially for smaller producers 
You don't want mm-hmm. it to become to the point that it's putting people out of business because they don't have the funds to to file the permit, even though they meet the requirements. You don't want them to be faced with these really burdensome regulations, even though they are made in a sustainable way. So it would function in that way. Be, so it, all food would have the word sustainable on it if it if it meets that definition. The second thing it would do, which again, organic did very successfully, you can't use the word organic on your label unless you are, unless you meet the USDA standards for what organic means. So that means all of these companies that are saying we're sustainably produced, we're, you know, we're eco-friendly, we're this, we're that, you can't, you wouldn't be able to use those terms anymore unless you actually are certified by the USDA. And that would be huge. That's a huge marketing experience right there. Like that's so big. Companies use that. They use those vague, the terms are called greenwashing. They sort of use these vague eco-friendly sounding terms to entice consumers into thinking that the products are actually sustainable. So with that, that, this sustainability labeling would stop a lot of that. I'm not saying all of it, but it would stop a good portion of it. Because you wouldn't be able to use the word sustainable unless you met the USDA definition. And the, you know, theoretically, my my hope would be if if this were to be implemented as the program grew, people would put as much faith in it as they currently do in the organic label. And it would actually mean, like, it would actually mean what consumers think organic means, which is sustainable. Um, and again, I, I, I don't want to say maybe people will do the same thing with the sustainability label that they've done with organic and paint with two like think it means something that it doesn't but i think sustainability is a environment you know environmental sustainability is a concrete enough concept that i think Mm -hmm. if it's if the legislation is designed correctly it wouldn't need to be people wouldn't need to pile more into it than is already there it would be fairly robust because it means what it means it means as we as you said so eloquently that basically it's not harmful to the environment and doesn't stop us from being able to produce food for future generations and bonus if it also benefits the environment so and, and yeah. that's and i think everyone can kind of agree that that's what sustainability means i think whereas, yeah, orga- I mean, whereas organic i think the definition is a lot more fluid <laughs> and it always has yeah, been. it I'm, always has been so this oh. is true um oh that's mine um, I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm quite certain that. Sorry, you cut out there for a sec. What'd you say? Oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. Sustain- uh, yeah. Sorry. Connectivity issue. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, the, you know, what I said probably mirrors the UN definition Absolutely. of sustainability, yes. you know, and, and while not every country has adopted that definition, that's generally what the public thinks of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and there's you know there's precedent for that in law as well mm-hmm. like you know the public trust doctrine you can't you know give away certain things to the detriment of the next generation right um but yeah i mean this is this is a really important topic that affects you know the global ecosystem mm-hmm. and i i hope that one day soon we have 
a sustainability label. I do too. And that you are one of the people <laughs> in the background helping to write it and word it correctly. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. I also, yeah, I will say, I will here. say that there are some, there's some movement, not in terms of the legislation specifically that I proposed, but more and more states are adopting what are called extended producer responsibility, EPR laws, um, mm. which basically they create actually, a, they're essentially targeting greenwashing and and they create a private right of action against companies who are using these really vague terms unless they have some meat to back it up so nice. that's that's a really promising sign i love the direction that these epr laws are going i think it's really incredible and it's really forcing companies to put their money where their mouth is and and if they're going to make green claims they got to back it up that is fantastic so, and that leads in nicely to what i like to do to the at the end of each show is uh, tell our listeners how they can be involved. So if you hear of these laws, what are they called again, Jillian? Extended producer responsibility laws. Okay. If you hear of these laws happening in your jurisdiction, in your area, call support your, them. Support them. Call your congressman and, and try to be, you know, it, like the, I, I do genuinely think that like there's, the private sector has a really important part to play in all of this. And if we as consumers can can move the needle a little bit on that, I think that's a huge step forward. Yeah, I mean, from reading your paper, I learned how much consumers move the needle on organic. So Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's one thing that lot... we didn't that's one thing we didn't touch on, but like that was the Organic Food Production Act was enacted because consumers wanted it. Yeah. And so if you want a sustainability label. Ask for it. Ask for it. And, you know, come election time, get on it. Yeah. Be like, hey, why should I support you? Start a movement. <laughs> like gather your people. Yeah. Gather your neighborhood. Rip up your lawn and grow some food, by the way. That would also be great. Yeah. Um, also, the other the other way, episode. the other way, I think, just on a more general scale, the way people can get involved, even if advocacy is not necessarily their thing, just mm -hmm. the the growing awareness. Like as we were discussing earlier, the the amount of pushback I get when when I tell people that organic is not very sustainable is pretty astounding. So just keeping in mind that the marketing around organic is not what it claims is not really like the companies benefit from the confusion around organic trust me so the the more we can kind of spread the word that that this is not the system that we need right now is the mm -hmm. is the best thing because the more it, that's that truly is how grassroots movements are formed and nowadays we think of organic as like it's a staple it's always been there but it was only enacted in 1990 it's not like it's that old yeah yeah so um, i mean we need that kind of we need that kind of awareness around sustainability in food absolutely so. and there are for your awareness pleasure there are going to be links in the show notes to Jillian's paper if you didn't get enough um, and as if you well thought, as if you thought this USDA. conversation was fun but not long enough enjoy the paper <laughs> here's a 30-page paper um also 
one of my favorite things to do uh, is mine the citations of well-researched papers so that I can further learn things. Um, but yeah, so there's going to be a link to Jillian's paper, a link to the USDA uh, uh, discussing allowed and prohibited substances so that, you know, we're not making it up, um, as well as an article that's a review of a screening event of the documentary Food Evolution, mm. um, which covers a lot of the material we covered. Um, the documentary is also uh, great. And perhaps for some of your uh, friends who don't want to listen to a really long podcast, <laughs> a more fun way to learn about um, food. But anyway, it has been a pleasure <laughs> having you on the podcast, Jillian. Thank you so much for I having me. I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you so much sharing your depth of knowledge and your research. Um, on something that really is a very personal issue, but also has a huge environmental impact yeah. on land and sea. Mm -hmm.